Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. My name is Jason Hua. I'm a uh, PGY4 here at McGovern Medical School, UT Health Science at uh, Houston. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. R.G. Stampus to the podcast today. Dr. Stampus is an assistant professor at the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the McGovern Medical School of the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. Welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Stampus. Can you talk to us a little bit about your uh, current research as, as well as uh, neurogenic bladder for all the trainees out there? Sure. Um, th- thanks for having me. Uh, first, uh, I guess we'll talk about neurogenic bladder in spinal cord injury. Um, I think the important thing for the trainees is that it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all type of uh, bladder Um, And what you see on the outside doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on with the bladder on the inside. And there's a a lot of myths that have been perpetuated about that specific topic. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we have, um, when they looked at ambulatory versus non-ambulatory acute spinal cord injury, Mm -hmm. uh, they found really no significant difference between the two based on neurodynamics. Okay. And then they looked at greater detail at some of the physical exam findings that we like to look at, mm-hmm. like a rectal pinprick sensation and the bubble cavernosis reflex. Right. And those two were completely insensitive to what's going on with the bladder. I see. I see. Um, so what are some of the management options we have now as far as for neurogenic bladder? So you can look at the management based upon the acuity of the, of the injury. So initially, you're going to really rely on emptying the bladder safely. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, we use a catheter, uh, whether it's an indwelling catheter or if it's a Foley catheter mm-hmm. or, or an intermittent catheter. Um, and then if it's intermittent, we have to employ some timed voiding scheme. So everything is timed. We allow the bladder to fill, and then we empty it accordingly. I see. Um, the, the, what we'll see later on as the bladder becomes morbid, which mm-hmm. happens in like 95% of people, uh, is starting to employ medications. So we use a lot of anticholinergic medications. I see to relax the bladder and prevent the spasticity that occurs in the bladder. Mm-hmm. It's technically detrusor hyperreflexia. I see, I see. And what are some of the limitations you, you find with our, our current approach as far as uh, using medications and, and things like that? Well, I think the, the big picture is that we're waiting for these symptoms to occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, And in medicine, that's really not the way we want to manage any problem. We want to treat before symptoms occur. We want to have preventative medicine, uh, not symptomatic. And right now we're relying on symptoms to guide the treatment. We know that these symptoms are going to occur. The problem is the 
options that we have now aren't necessarily benign to start early okay. before symptoms arise, uh-huh. nor are they even um, covered by insurance. They're not necessarily feasible, expensive, or, or accessible. So, <clears throat> you know, with oral medications, you have lots of side effects. Mm-hmm. Spinal cord injury typically requires higher doses than non-spinal cord injury to manage the, the bladder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the side effects include sedation, constipation, um, dry mouth. These are all things that, with higher doses, are even worse mm-hmm. and leads to eventual non-compliance. I see. I see. Uh, and then newer research is showing that there's an association with dementia with higher anticholinergic medication burden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it would be difficult to justify starting a young patient on a medication that they're having no clinical symptoms mm-hmm. with as far as incontinence. I see. And um, telling them that they're going to be on this for the rest of their life and probably on higher doses than the non-spinal cord population, mm-hmm. it just seems like it's a setup for putting them at greater risk for dementia. I see. I see. Then you can go the non-pharmacologic route, mm-hmm. which is uh, right now it's really Botox. Right. Uh, it's the only one that's indicated at this point. Mm-hmm. But you typically have to fail bladder meds first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, it comes at an expense. Right. Uh, you have to have access to a urologist that does perform this in spinal cord injury, and mm-hmm. not every, you know, not every urologist office is able to to provide care for spinal cord injury based, mm-hmm. you know, on access, mm-hmm. you know, transfers and whatnot. Right. Um, but it also comes at a risk of urinary tract infection. I see. It's okay. somewhere between 24 and 54 percent risk uh, associated with urinary tract infection, right. and if we're thinking of using this early to prevent morbidity, mm-hmm. th- there would be a real dilemma because some of the newer research in spinal cord injury is that infections in the acute period can lean can lead to long term negative outcomes. I see. So it would be hard to justify that as well. Let's go ahead and give everybody Botox to their bladder. Right. Um, because, you know, there's a chance that you're going to also have a UTI, mm-hmm. which could cause some worsening neurologic recovery forever. I see. I see. Um, and so then there's other options, which at this point, the bladder is is very difficult to manage. It's kind of like a last resort. Mm-hmm. Uh and neuromodulation is an option. It's mm-hmm. not FDA approved, mm-hmm. uh, but it is used in other populations, so it would be an off-label, off-label use. Right. Um, and, and it's really not uh, efficacious for spinal cord injury. Uh, and I'm speaking I specifically see. to sacral neuromodulation. I see, I see. Uh, there's a, a non-invasive version or a less invasive version, the mm-hmm. percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation. Yeah, that's what your presentation was about today with our uh, grand rounds. Right. So can you talk a little bit about your current investigation? Yeah. So the percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation is using a needle to stimulate the tibial nerve. I see. And they've, they saw this mechanism, you know, in the 1980s, mm-hmm. they investigated this, how the tibial nerve sensory afferents travel to the spinal cord I see. at about the same level as the visceral, the bladder afferents mm-hmm. get into the spinal cord. Okay. And using stimulation of the tibial nerve, you can block the reflex 
of the motor mm-hmm. efferents to the bladder. I see. So you're basically interrupting the bladder loop, the spastic loop that exists. Right, right. Um, so the needle-driven or percutaneous route requires okay. a, a trained healthcare professional to deliver. Mm. So that means you have to go to clinic, and currently management is one to three times a week for three months, Okay. Uh, making it really not a feasible uh, management tool for spinal cord injury, considering all the difficulties they have in accessing healthcare to begin with. I see. Um, so the thought was, well, this worked uh, in MS patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had less side effects than a control group mm-hmm. that was using Vesicare. I see. Uh, and had the same efficacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so why not try to convert this percutaneous into a transcutaneous route using sur- surface electrodes? I see. And they've done that in research. They've investigated it, and it seems to work. Mm-hmm. And now let's try to translate it into something that can be clinically used, not mm-hmm. just research used. Mm-hmm. So we tried it on inpatients with spinal cord injury, okay. and then we also tried it with our outpatients with spinal cord injury. Right. And both groups, we found that it was safe. Mm-hmm. It was feasible. Um, we also found some evidence of e- efficacy in both groups. I see. On the inpatients, we saw urodynamic parameters that were worsening in the control group mm. that weren't worsening to the extent in the TTNS group. Okay. So the pathologic reflexes increased in the controls, mm-hmm. but not to the extent that it, um, they did in the... I'm sorry. Everybody had worsening parameters, as you'd expect over right. time. right. But it was significantly worse in the controls I see. compared I see. to the TTNS group. That's interesting. It's good to know. And then in the outpatients, we based our outcomes on um, quality of life measures as well as bladder diaries. Mm-hmm. And all those survey measures showed uh, improvement with the use of TTNS at home. Well, that's very interesting. That's a very interesting topic. Um, and then what do you foresee in the future as far as uh, with, this, with this investigation? So, so right now we're just investigating it as a tool. So the next step is performing a randomized control trial in chronic spinal cord injuries mm-hmm. um, where we actually have a, a sham control group to look right. at efficacy mm-hmm. or, or effectiveness, really. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of it is these early... Um, intervening early to see if it can prevent outcomes long term. So we are planning a study starting from acute spinal cord injury in rehab mm-hmm. with uh, daily use during rehab, discharge with the device, mm-hmm. and follow up at one year. Gotcha. Um, so then that'll tell us if we are truly mitigating the the spastic reflexes that become kind of hardwired into the bladder over time. I see. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Stampus, for joining us for this podcast and for your informative information regarding your current research. Um, So thank you for joining us. You're welcome. My pleasure. Appreciate it. gentlemen, as we close another session of our podcast, I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. 
We will double-check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.